Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Nor as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast about death. We don't talk about death as much anymore, John. I can fix that. Okay, good. Uh, but we, in addition to talking about death, we uh, answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm doing all right, considering that the sweet embrace of death is coming for me. Yeah, no, forever, forever and ever. I uh, so so when you raise your children, uh, is a, qu- a question that has become very pressing to me. Um, when do you when do you start to, to tell them that they're going to die? <laughs> Uh, I guess when they start asking, uh, which is pretty early. Uh, I remember Henry's best friend, Luna, her cat died, and there was a whole ceremony. They buried the cat in the backyard. Luna and Henry were probably three. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, uh, someone came over to the house and said, Luna, I heard your cat went to heaven. And Luna looked at the person and said, what are you talking about? There's no heaven for cats. (laughs) (laughs) The cat went in the yard. Yeah, exactly. The cat is under the tree. And I was just thinking like, man, they already have these sophisticated ideas around death that they just don't express to you because they're sort of probably because they're afraid of it. Like I remember Maurice Sendak once saying about childhood that he knew uh, the only thing he knew was that he was aware of deep and terrible secrets that adults didn't seem to know. And I do think that children are very aware from a very early age of the subjects that adults are trying to tiptoe around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, that, then I know the answer, John. I'll just uh, I'll start them off early. Uh, do you have a short poem for us today? Yeah, I'm glad that we've started on such a high <laughs> note. How are you doing? I guess we could talk about me. I'm fine. Uh, I feel really good. I spent a lot of time this weekend trying to make all of the things that I have to do go away, 
which I love. And I've been saying no to many people. Uh, and, and I have this wonderful reason to say no. And they can be like, oh, that's a great reason for you to say no. And then I don't have to worry about hurting their feelings. So it's wonderful. Yeah, no. And that, that by the way, that doesn't go away. Like you continue to uh, be able to use parenthood as an excuse. So that's, that, that's one of the big benefits, I would argue, of parenthood, in addition to the pure joy of having children. Sarah and I uh, just got back from a one-week vacation slash writing retreat, mostly a writing retreat, uh, in Maine, which was really lovely. And I was delighted to have Flula play the role of uh, me mm-hmm. last week. I thought he did a great job, but I'm very happy to be back. I'm glad to have you back. I'm glad to have you back. And uh, I have to ask, on behalf of all of the people in the world, did you finish your book? Mm, no. No, I did not. Uh, I am working hard. Okay. It is difficult and slow, but uh, let's answer some questions from our listeners. Wait, no. First, I have a short poem. Wait, short poem. Short poem. Hank, uh, I really liked a couple weeks ago when you turned our corrections into a short poem, so I decided to take a corrective <laughs> uh, note from a listener named Jerome and turn it into a short poem by adding line breaks. It is as follows. The U.S. Mint does not make any $100 bills, or any bills at all for that matter. They only make coins. <laughs> I mean, this is an innovation, John. I don't know. <laughs> I, can, can I do one? Uh, yes, yes, feel free. All right. Everyone on Twitter would like you to know that it was Rick Springfield and not Rick Ocasek who wrote Jesse's Girl. <laughs> but still, I stand by the fact that Jesse's Girl was named Jesse. <laughs> I'm really sorry to Rick Springfield, by the way. I, I carried that bit on with Flula for a long time about uh, about Rick Ocasek uh, uh, wanting Jesse's girl Jesse, but it was Rick Springfield, different Rick. Too many Ricks, too many Jessies, John. Yeah, it's hard out there for a Springfield. Let's move on to questions from our listeners. This one comes from Emily, who writes, Dear John and Hank, is there a way for me to moisturize my nostrils between a new job that requires me to breathe in a lot of flour and other powders and the air conditioning as it is summer where I live? My nostrils have been quite dry recently. Is there a safe and effective way for me to moisturize them? Side note, I have asthma and thus cannot use humidifiers. Okay. So, Hank, I want to just begin by acknowledging the elephant in the room, yes. which is that Emily has essentially said without saying it that she works in a cocaine factory. Yeah, I mean, the, you can't just say other powders. Well, that's not a- Yeah, I mean, I think we all know when you're talking about flour and other powders, you're talking about mostly cocaine and then secondarily the flour used to cut the cocaine in potency. <laughs> Um, I, uh, yes, but first I want to say, Emily, uh, you should probably, I don't mean to judge, but get another job because working in a cocaine factory is both dangerous and illegal. Uh, secondly though, yes, I have the same problem. And there are a number of products on the market that, uh, are specifically designed for putting up your nose when it's dry. You can also, according to a website I went to, use coconut oil, which smells good. Yeah, the only thing that I would say here, Hank, is to make absolutely sure that uh, if you use water, to use distilled water, because it's possible that if you use tap water Mm -hmm. uh, to moisturize your nostrils, you could get brain amoebas, which are almost always fatal. Yes. And I do not want Emily to get brain amoebas, particularly given that she is already taking so many risks in her professional life. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the, there's the whole neti pot thing. But there's this stuff I use. It's called Air, but it's spelled A-Y-R. Uh, and there's mm. a number of similar products uh, that it's just like yeah, a, like you a saline get, gel. It's saline solution. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the solution, Emily. I mean, the, the first solution is to stop working in the cocaine factory. But if it's necessary to remain there, uh, then, yeah, I think you go with a the saline solution. The second solution is a saline uh, solution. But again, we want to emphasize it's not a good idea to work in a cocaine factory. It's just not a good long-term nope, solution. never. All right, John, I've got another question from David, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I think I'm having a crisis in my life for years. I have always known what my favorite colors are, and I have always been proud of that and never expected it to change. All of a sudden, I find myself admiring the color red, and I'm afraid it's replacing brown as my favorite color. Do I just abandon brown and embrace red? And if I do, isn't that abandoning a part of who I am? Please tell me what my favorite color actually is so I can move on with my life. Love, David. He didn't say love, David, but I put that in there. Hank, I've got great news for David, and I think that you're going to agree with me on this, which is that David does not need to change his favorite color due to the fact that red is technically, in my opinion, a shade of brown. Or is brown a shade of red? No, 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 no. Red is a shade of brown, for sure. So your favorite color is brown, and your favorite shade of brown at the moment is red. But that can evolve. Like, the core essential thing is that your favorite color is brown, but there are a bunch of shades of brown. You've got your, your dark browns, your white browns, your tans, your reds, etc. But what if... Brown is a shade of red, and David's favorite color was always red, and now he's just realizing it. Yeah, no, that would make sense if brown were a shade of red. Unfortunately for you, it's not. Red is a shade of brown. Oh, uh, well, I'm, so what other colors are shades of brown? Yellow? Is yellow a shade of brown? Yellow is, is essentially a very light brown, that is correct. Uh, so how about orange? Orange, also a shade of brown. It's sort of, some would say... Um, in the same way that red is a shade of brown, yes, orange is definitely a shade of brown. I'm gonna so I'm gonna continue around the color wheel and ask if uh, if like uh, blue is a shade of brown. Good question. Obviously not. I mean, look at blue. <laughs> it is clearly not a shade of brown. This is not a difficult <laughs> subject, Hank. Like okay, red, orange, and yellow, all shades of brown. Blue and green, not shades of brown. Black, not a shade of brown. White, not a shade of brown. Teal, not a shade of brown, etc. It's very obvious. Everyone knows that red and yellow and oranges are shades purple? of brown. Purple? Purple is not a shade of brown. It's between blue and green. No, it's not. It's between red and blue. No, it's not. It's between blue and green. Maybe not on the color wheel, but everybody knows in real life, like in real, you know, the way we experience colors, it's between blue and green. Okay. Um, do you have any more serious answers for David? Uh, I, I don't think it's that serious of a question. <laughs> <laughs> I well, you can say I would say that uh, that you are gonna change in your life, and you are going to abandon the thing that you once were, and you will no longer be that thing, and that is a sign not of some personal disaster, but of growth, and uh, and and harkens back to our our desire to write in your high school yearbook uh, instead of don't ever change change <laughs> i mean i that's all lovely advice hank and it's a beautiful sentiment it's just that as it happens his favorite color has not changed <laughs> okay all right all right you got another question for us 
I have another question, but I, I, I almost don't want to move on until you acknowledge that red is a shade of brown. <laughs> I'm going to type it into Google. Is red a shade of brown? The first, the auto- Surely I'm not alone in thinking The this. autocomplete was pink. Is red a shade of pink? The color brown. <laughs> the, uh, pink, interestingly, is not a shade of brown, but yeah. Oh, I mean, there's, there's a Wikipedia page called Shades of Brown. And it is just, yeah. it's amber, beaver, beige, buff, burnt sienna, burnt umber, chestnut, chocolate, cocoa brown, desert sand, khaki. Right. I mean, you're still in the seas, Hank. Just scroll down to red. Peru, raw umber, rosy brown, russet, sandy brown, smoky topaz, tan taupe, and wood brown. Oh, yeah, no, that's the one. It's it's russet, russet san, sandy brown. That's that They call that, <laughs> that's what some people call red. Um, let's move on to another question before I get proven wrong. This question is from Trisha. <laughs> okay. Who asks, Dear John and Hank, you two have established a few rules throughout the podcast, namely when one is allowed to use the phrase turn of the century and who gets which armrest. And I have run into another scenario that could use your expertise. At which point in the day do I switch from saying have a good day to have a good night? Any dubious advice would be greatly appreciated. This is one of the great questions, I think, of being alive. The first thing that I would say is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Wheaton's Law. It has a curse word in it, so I don't want to say it because my kid listens to this podcast and presumably other kids. Sure. Uh, But Wheaton's Law is essentially don't be a jerk. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. The other day, I was on a jog. And I passed someone. And, you know, when you pass someone when you're jogging, you don't have a lot of time to interact, but you want to be polite. So I said, morning. I didn't say good morning. I just said morning as an acknowledgement of a a way of saying hello. Right. Also an acknowledgement of the time of day it was. Morning. And the other person is like, agreed. Uh, It is that. Exactly. So so the, the, the way the conversation should go is you say morning. The other person says morning or hello or whatever it is that they want to say in this passing jogging moment. But what the person said instead was... It's 12.02. (laughs) Are you a YouTube commenter? And I was like, we don't have time for me to pursue this conversation further down the line because we are passing each other while jogging. You're going seven miles an hour. I'm going 5.2 miles per hour. Like the conversation is about to end. Why did you need to do that? What did, who, who is the victor? Oh, wow. Wow. I love it. I love it. I love that so much. John, you know I find it very difficult to say the right thing in these situ like not not in that situation, but when I'm saying like when it's Friday and I'm saying goodbye to someone, a, a traditional thing to say is have a nice weekend. Knowing that it is Friday and that the weekend is coming up mm-hmm. is way beyond my cognitive ability. Like I am so focused on just trying to have a, a positive interaction with another human that knowing what day of the week it is is way outside of my abilities so i like it's funny you should mention that because i'm actually strongly opposed to have a good weekend oh yeah uh yeah because so when sarah and i first started dating she managed an art gallery and her working hours were tuesday to saturday and in fact a lot of people's working hours are not in traditional weekends and when people would say on friday afternoon to sarah have a good weekend it was like a crushing attack it was like a (laughs) reminder that she had to go to work at 7.30 in the morning on Saturday. Right, but oftentimes uh, I'm saying this to people who I employ uh, and and who I am right. letting go for their time that they get to have on their own. So I do know what their schedule is. 
schedules are. I, I think that okay. hopefully none of them work the weekends uh, for other companies. That that would be that would be a lot of work. Uh, but I yeah, and in the same way, when you're at a movie theater and they say enjoy the movie, and you're like you too, because like I don't know, I don't know what I'm saying. I can't control, my, and like the idea that I'm gonna know whether it's have a good day or have a good night. I don't know what time it is. I can't. Of of the things that I'm trying to deal with right now, whether it's four o'clock or six o'clock is especially during the summer in Montana when the sun goes down at like 930. You just no one knows. No one knows what time it is. No one knows if it's day or night. But I do have an opinion on this. Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) The the fact that you are yourself totally unable uh, to process any such information doesn't keep you from having a strong opinion. Absolutely. Well, it's not a strong opinion. I think the great thing about have a good day and have a good night is that they overlap significantly. And you can say have you can say have a good day up to like seven o'clock and you can say have a good night anywhere after five. I think you can say have a good day as long as it is still light. And I think you can say have a good night. I agree. Starting at 5 p.m. So sometimes there's no crossover like in winter in Indianapolis, you know, (laughs) when the sun sets at 445 that's one thing. But in summertime, I agree. You've got have a good day as long as the sun is out and have a good night starting at the end of the traditional workday, 5 p.m. Agreed? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or, or I think I think that if somebody's leaving work early, you could still say have a good night. Because it's, like, it's not like it has to be night for them to have a good one. I'm wishing you a good night whenever that occurs. Yeah. So I think we're settled. Uh, there's a lot of overlap. And also, we need, in general, to be understanding of each other when it comes to conversational slip-ups. <laughs> I mean, how does that person jogging even know what time it is? Did they, do they have, like, a thing that says in their brain, like, every time an hour, like, a minute changes, it's like, it's 12.01, Jeremy. It's 12.02, Jeremy. It's fun. You know how you have those little conversations with strangers that stick with you for a long, long time because something, some part of it didn't go well? Um I have a bunch of those and you, you know, you circle back to them at night when you can't fall asleep. Can I tell you another one? It's really, it's super embarrassing. (laughs) Okay. So I have a friend, he's a journalist Uh and he's reporting on the New York Knicks and he uh, came to Indianapolis to watch a Knicks game where they were playing the Indianapolis Pacers, my hometown NBA team. And he was like, do you want to go to the game? And I was like, sure. And then after the game, he was like, do you want to go to the locker room? And I was like, yeah. And so uh, I got to go to the locker room. It was really cool and it was a good experience. And when you get to the locker room, you know, there's all these NBA players, very large, strong uh, people and lots Mm -hmm. of coaches and stuff. And I noticed that there was also uh, a lot of food. Specifically, there was like uh, some pulled pork and uh, rice and some food from a local restaurant. And it looked really good. And so I just grabbed a plate and I started piling uh, food onto my plate because I was like, (laughs) you know, whatever, free food. And uh, turns out uh, that food is for the players. So a guy comes up to me and he says, excuse me, who are you? And I was like, oh, I'm John Green. (laughs) 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 And like, I guess like that, that line doesn't go quite as far in the world of the NBA as it might go, you know, other places. And uh, (laughs) and he, he, his reply to me saying, I'm John Green was, who is that? And I was like, uh, I'm, I'm with my friend. 
and I named my friend and he was like, he was like, and, and I was like, and he said I could come in here. And he was like, oh, you can come in here. It's just that that food is for the players. And I was like, oh, uh, who is that? Who is that, though? Oh, <laughs> and I, essentially every day in the years since that happened to me, I have spent at least 30 or 40 seconds feeling regret about that whole interaction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to know that about you. I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you, uh, but we all have those moments, don't we? Except for me, I don't I have hope any. that we all have those moments. I'm not alone in this in this shame and horror. Anyway, Hank, let's move on to another question from our listeners. All right, this one's from Kate, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm currently watching the Olympic swim trials and wondering, when you swim that vigorously, do you sweat like normal and not notice it because the pool is washing it off, or does the pool cool you down enough that you don't need to sweat? I'm hoping it's the latter because it makes it less gross when they put the water in their mouths. Oh, I bet you sweat. You do sweat. Ah, oh, God, I'm so good at science. Tell yeah. me more. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. To, like, you can't notice that you're sweating because there's no actual physical sensation of, like, sweat came out, and now I feel that. You, you feel the sweat on you. But if you're covered in water, then you don't feel the sweat. Um, so, yeah, you do sweat. Uh, and, and it's funny because, you're like, technically your body doesn't need to sweat because it's obviously not going to help you at all. But your body doesn't have any way of knowing that you're you're submerged in water so it still is like you are hotter than you should be i will try to cool you off and this is the technique i have for trying to cool you off even though it fails immediately so um yeah you sweat and uh swimming pools have sweat in them and when you put swimming pool water in your mouth some of it sweat and it's okay except that probably not for john I mean, it's not ideal for me, but I understand that I'm not coming at it from a place of reason. Uh, let's move <laughs> on to another question. This one's from Therese with the subject line, hope exists as a velociraptor. Dear John and Hank, <laughs> the school year has ended and still I am wondering about a strange rule my English teacher had. According to her, the words is, are, was, and were provide no meaning and therefore should be eliminated from language. However, I think the phrase <laughs> hope exists as the thing with feathers does not have the same ring to it as hope is the thing with feathers. Please help convince my teacher that the words is, are, was, and were are, whoops, not the incarnation of evil itself. So, Hank... Oh, God, John, John, wait, 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 wait. You went for the science question first, so I want to I wanna have my go at the grammar question. Okay. Uh, your teacher is dumb. <laughs> I think you mean your teacher exists as an incorrect thing in the world. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, quite. Uh, this se this seems this seems ludicrous to me. Like deeply, deeply ludicrous, uh, especially for a for an English teacher to say. Yeah, I think I know what's going on, but I I strongly agree with you that that it is ludicrous. Now there are languages that do not have uh, those to be verbs in them. It's just that English is not one of them, uh, and and we aren't we aren't going uh, to change that because. So much of the way we communicate involves to be verbs, and that's okay, and it's not uh, not the incarnation of evil itself. I think what may be going on is that your teacher was trying to discourage you uh, or, or your fellow students from using the passive voice in your writing. Um, 
But that is not actually a matter of removing all to be verbs from your vocabulary. It's just a matter of not <laughs> using the passive voice. Uh, hope is the thing with feathers, uh, not an example of, of the passive voice. Uh, so, yeah, your teacher is definitely 100% wrong that, that all, um, all to be verbs should be removed from English, at least in my opinion, and also, I think, in the opinion of Emily Dickinson, <laughs> and really, I'm pretty sure every English language novel I've ever read, uh, but... I also think, by the way, that there are times when the passive voice is perfectly justifiable or even a good idea. Uh, so, yeah, don't, uh, yeah, that's, a, uh, usually I fall, I fall on the side of English teachers, especially when it comes to uh, students complaining that uh, reading a book critically is, quote, uh, killing it or destroying it for me or whatever. But in this case, I have to side with the student uh, in favor of to be or not to be, <laughs> but having some kind of uh, to be verb in your vocabulary. All right. The ability to be. I'm also in favor of the ability to be, John, because uh, sometimes you stop being and that's awful because it's, uh, it's the end then. You're just trying to work death back into the podcast so that this can still be a comedy <laughs> podcast about death. But don't worry, I promise uh, to work it in more organically into the next question. All right, John, I, I look forward to you working death into this question. Dear Hank and John, my friend and I recently got into a debate about the correct way to wear a wristwatch. That was difficult to say. I argued that the face of the watch should be on the top of the wrist. She says that it's easier to glance at the face if it's on the bottom of your wrist, which is correct. Is there a reason for wearing it one way or the other? Or does it really not matter at all? John, work death into that one. Well, I mean... It doesn't matter at all in the sense that, you know, nothing that we do matters because, uh, you know, death is going to swallow all of us in the end and everything that we do will be forgotten by the sands of time. So I wouldn't spend too much time thinking about your wristwatch being this way or that when, uh, you know, ultimately to say that it isn't going to matter is a dramatic understatement because none of it's going to matter. Right. Well, I also agree that it doesn't matter. It's strange to me because I, I'd never thought about it, but yeah, it does seem a little more natural to look at the inside of your wrist. Like in terms of, of arm position, it t requires a little less torque. Um, but I would also say that most of the time the wrist watch is on the top so that, you know, I, I think maybe so that when you lay your arm down, it lays flat against a table because you don't tend to lay your arm down with the, the top down. And uh, also, if you have a fancy watch, you want people to see it because you spent a lot of money on it. Oh, I thought the I thought the question was, should I put my watch upside down? Because then I don't have good spatial intelligence. <laughs> I don't really understand this question. <laughs> Love um, side down so like but, the person looking at you can read it. Like the person standing in front of you can read it up, right side up. Because that's definitely that's exactly that's, that's what definitely I was the, wrong the question way to was about a watch. I think it's like eating a Reese's. I don't really think there is necessarily a wrong way to wear a watch. Although in saying that, I realize immediately that there are a bunch of wrong ways to wear a watch. Like for instance, <laughs> if you wear it around your ankle, right? Don't wear it around your ankle. Don't wear it on the inside of your digestive tract. That would be bad. <laughs> oh man, oh that would be uh, would be not ideal. All right, Hank, it's been a lot of fun and games here, but let's let's tackle a serious question, okay? This one okay. comes from Marwa, who asks, Dear John and Hank, 
What do you do when you feel like you are not yourself, like you're watching your life play out in hindsight, or like you're watching a movie and only finding out about the decisions that quote-unquote you took from the movie? I know that sounds like insanity, but how do you stop yourself thinking something when the thing you want to stop and the thing you want to stop it with are the same? Oh. This is actually, I think, a big, fascinating, difficult question and something that I struggle with all the time uh, and that, not to spoil anything, I'm writing about every day. How do you even understand yourself to be you or yours when you are not in control of your thoughts or your feelings or the actions of your body? Like, when you talk about you, what do you even mean when... The, the thoughts that are quote-unquote yours don't feel like they belong to you or the body that is quote-unquote yours doesn't feel like it belongs to you. Like, how do you, uh, how do you make sense of that? And I think uh, the only answer that I have is that it is uh, extremely complicated, but that I don't think it's uncommon to feel like you are not in control of the thoughts that you have been told are yours you know yeah i we the the i have also been thinking a lot about this interestingly um i recently gave a a humorous talk um but one of the one of the i also like to like when i'm just making jokes i like to mix in a little bit of like oh i hadn't thought about that before but there's that phrase i think it's victor hugo nothing is as powerful as an idea whose time has come Mm -hmm. and i was talking about that phrase and um and the 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 wonderful thing about it is that it takes the agency out of the people and it gives it to the idea itself. It gives us to this this conception that, yes, requires a human brain in order to express itself, but has power external to any individual human. And you cannot stop it uh, in, in the, the phrase like it says on its own, like the person itself, like the person having the idea is not the powerful thing and in, mm-hmm. indeed is powerless next to the power of the idea. And I think that we have this myth in our culture that we are all individuals and that we make all of these decisions and that we have this like, and yes, we do make decisions and we do construct ourselves. But to some extent, like we are very much a product of the things that we, you know, have been told and consume and, and the people in our lives. And and we all construct that for each other. And I think it's, I find it helpful to recognize that that is a thing and that I am not just me. I am a, a creation that has, I'm, I'm a creation that, that I, that like my consciousness has been involved in creating, but that has also been created by all of the things that I have consumed and all of the people that I have known and, and, uh, and by, you know, my parents and the people that I love. Yeah. It's very much a both and proposition to me, uh, consciousness mm-hmm. in general, that, that consciousness is both something that is within and something that is without. And it's almost like, for me at least, like in accepting that, uh, there's a measure of freedom. There's also, I, I mean, I, I want to emphasize that, you know, both Hank and I come at this from a very, uh, like thinking about consciousness uh, from a very particular and, and in like lots and lots of different ways, very privileged position. But um, but for me, being able to to say I'm not in control of these thoughts and I don't want to be having them uh, is, is is very it, 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 just being able to acknowledge that is a kind of empowering for me. Um, that way, I don't have to be held responsible for every 
thought that comes across my bow, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And in -hmm. the times in my life when I felt like I did have to be responsible for every thought that came across my bow, it was very difficult because a lot of times um, I don't like the thoughts that I'm having or I don't feel like I'm in control of them. And, uh, you know, I, I think for me at least, like acknowledging like, yes, I am an individual, but I am also like within a big... Uh, complicated, endless nexus of cultures and consciousnesses that are all interacting both inside of me and outside of me. Uh, there was there. There's some freedom in that, and it also makes me feel a little bit less uh, less like I'm you know crazy, for lack of a, a better term. Um, but yeah, I also I mean, look if you if you feel it, if you start to feel like you're really not in control of of your consciousness or your thoughts or your feelings. The other thing that I would say is that it's important to talk about that with somebody who's uh, professional and who knows a lot more about that than uh, Hank or John. <laughs> so I think uh, that's the other thing that's been helpful in my own life when I've, when I've felt like that, as I often do. Excellent. Uh, I have another question that I really want to get to because I think that it's important and I am an expert on this. It's from River who asks, Dear Hank and John, I live on the southwest coast of Oregon and since I was young I've been told to be prepared for the big one, which is a large earthquake that we are overdue for. This would also cause a devastating tsunami. My question is, if I happen to be walking along the beach when this earthquake strikes, should I swim out far into the ocean before the tsunami strikes? Assuming that I have no chance of reaching higher ground, should I accept my watery demise or attempt to avoid the tsunami much like boats do by sailing out into the ocean river do not swim out into the ocean (laughs) i have a one sentence piece of advice when the tsunami is coming do not attempt to swim two miles out into the ocean and then swim back (laughs) yeah uh there there so if you feel the earthquake uh, and I do want to give this advice to everyone in the coast of the Pacific Northwest or anywhere where there may be a tsunami. You have anywhere from five to 30 minutes to get to a safe place. You do not know how long it's going to take. So it is perfectly possible that you could walk at a leisurely pace up a hill and survive. You do not know how big the tsunami is going to be. You do not know how long it's going to take to get there. You don't know if there's going to be a tsunami at all. But if you see, uh, if you feel an earthquake and you're walking along a beach, you go climb up that hill. And you do it now. So, Hank, when River says that the big one is overdue and is coming any day, is that true? Well, it depends on what you mean by any day. But yes, there will be someday another very large earthquake that hits the Pacific Northwest, and there hasn't been one in a very, very long time. And in the geological record... So when you say very large, you mean like terrifyingly... Yeah, no, really bad. Yeah, terrifyingly like, like large? Worse than Hurricane Katrina bad. Oh, Jesus. Um, and, and it will be very, very bad. And... And, you know, the people in the Pacific Northwest are working on um, systems uh, to make it less bad. Um, But, like, there are a lot of people who live in the tsunami zone, and it will be very bad. So uh, know your evacuation routes um, and uh and know where the the nearest highest ground is and head there and uh, and if you're if you get stuck in traffic, get out and walk. Okay, so today's podcast is brought to you no joke. 
by Hank's disaster preparedness plan. Hank's disaster preparedness plan. Do not swim out into the ocean. Seek high ground immediately. <laughs> Hank is not kidding. He is very serious about this. This is not a joke. Uh, yeah, okay. I agree. I, I was recently in Oregon and I was walking along the beach and I was like, boy, if I... The other thing to know is if you see the water getting sucked out, uh, like suddenly water... You're like, why is suddenly the water all gone? That's a very bad sign. And you should climb a tree. Um because you do not have a lot of time. Uh, so I was, I've just spent some time in Oregon recently, and I always think about tsunamis when I'm on that coast. Uh, oh, man, who's the one who's preoccupied with apocalyptic worry? It used to be me, but the, the shoe is suddenly on the other foot. Hank, who else has brought us the podcast today? Uh, the, who, the podcast was also brought to you by the, the sweat in the swimming pool. A good old-fashioned swimming pool sweat. It's in there. Mm, delicious. Not even to mention the pee, which is also in there. And of course, today's podcast is brought to you by Shades of Brown. Shades of Brown, now including red and yellow. And orange. Mm -hmm. Delicious orange. And finally, this podcast is brought to you by Other Kinds of Powders. Other kinds of powders. Definitely not a euphemism for working in a cocaine factory. Good old other powders. <laughs> What's the other powder? What, what is, I mean, I'm trying to imagine a non-cocaine factory explanation for Emily's life, well, right? I imagine I, that Emily works in a bakery and that there's cornstarch and that there's powdered sugar and that there's... Cornstarch is not a powder and powdered sugar is not really a powder. I mean, it's in the name, John. I don't know. I'm very concerned about it's this whole situation. It's powdered sugar. It is, is definitely a powder. I mean... If there is anything that I cannot imagine, I am not going to let you get away with that. There is nothing more powdered, powder-like than powdered sugar. I don't know why I got so angry. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep, it's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Okay, Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and the news from AFC Wimbledon, which I, I would just as soon skip, to be honest with you, uh, let's get to a few responses from previous episodes. Uh, the first most important thing I want to... Uh, 
one 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 thing we've gotten a number of responses from is if current employees of Amazon, uh, several of them have written in uh, to talk about how Jeff Bezos is indeed not referred to as a colleague or as a co-worker, but as Jeff. For instance, uh, this letter came in from Mark. In your latest episode, you talked about how everyone at Amazon would probably call Jeff Jeff. Well, I've worked at Amazon for more than three years and can confirm that this is exactly the case, so much so that I've been on a team where people call Jeff Bezos Jeff and refer to the Jeff who works 10 feet away by using his first and last name. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. It's hard out there for the other Jeffs. Another response from Jamal who says, I'm active duty Navy and currently stationed in Japan. There is an abundance of Zimas here. Since Hank is such a vehement fan, I'm currently working out the le- legalities of international shipments of alcohol to Montana. What address can I send them to? Jamal, that's a great question <laughs> and an extremely important one, mostly because I want to see how Hank actually feels about Zima, especially if you can manage to send 378 of them from Japan. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I will be more than happy to reimburse you for those 378 Zimas. <laughs> Unfortunately, our only address is a P.O. box, uh, because otherwise you'd have to send it to our house. However, I'm going to uh, let you know what our P.O. Box is. It is P.O. Box 30152, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46230. And you can either Ooh. address that to uh, John Green or to Hank Green or just to uh, Zima lovers everywhere. I'm surprised to know you can't send 378 Zimas from a Navy base in Japan to Indianapolis. That just doesn't seem right. Yeah, oh, the, the yeah, logistics, John, logistics. Uh, so we have an actual P.O. box is what you're saying to me right now. We do. We have an actual P.O. box where you can send us 378 of anything. Please, no less, and also no more. P.O. Box 30152, <laughs> Indianapolis, Indiana, 46230. Speaking of which, we heard from a listener named Rachel who uh, used to live outside of the Big League Chew Factory or something like that. Uh, or her friend does. <laughs> and they have, and they like give out, if you like knock on the door of the Big League Chew Factory, they give out Big League Chew rejects. And so, John, you said you wanted 378 packets of Big League Chew. Apparently, Rachel has the inside track on that. So, Rachel, hey. Rachel, if you can hook me up, I would be very, very grateful. I can't tell you how much I enjoy Big League Chew, or at least how much I enjoyed it when I last tried it in 1984. Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that we can say to Rachel, absolutely, if you also want to send us a bill for the shipping will handle it for you. Yes, correct. Um, although I don't want to go down the road, Hank, of offering to pay for 378 anythings because <laughs> it seems like a dangerous, dangerous game. Uh, all right. One last response. Uh, this one came in from Annie, who wrote, I have an idea for the listener who wondered what to do with her middle school writings. When I was a senior in college, my roommate and I joked about how terribly we'd written when we were younger, and we pulled up essays we'd turned in as freshmen and laughed uproariously at the quality of our work, which gave us the idea for the greatest party ever. We held a middle school poetry slam and asked our friends to bring their favorite and or worst writings from when they were younger. That is indeed a wonderful that is idea, a good idea, Annie. And, uh, I think that's that's one to hold on to. That's a great idea. I lo- I love that. I think we should do that on the Vlogbrothers channel. Mm, I'm going to argue against that. Let's move on to the news from Mars and <laughs> AFC Wimbledon. Hank, uh, I should probably go first. We'll get this over as fast as possible. AFC Wimbledon are three games into their League One season. They have won no games, but also uh, they have tied no games. Um, that's not good. It's not good. It's not going great. Uh, we, we just lost to Scunthorpe. Uh, also lost to Bolton 
Um, and before that, uh, lost to Walsall. Also lost to Peterborough in uh, the Football League Cup, which is a separate competition. So we're out of that competition. Uh, four games so far this season, zero points, uh, sitting last in the League One table. Now, one could argue that the three teams that have beaten us are all in the top seven of the League One table. Alternately, one could argue that one of the reasons they're in the top seven is because they've all played AFC Wimbledon. Uh, <laughs> very, very nervous start to the season here. One piece of comfort, if we just won one of those three games, we would be sitting 14th. But we didn't. So we're sitting in last. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. That does not sound great. Well, life is long and so is a season. He said, vaguely hopeful. What's the news from Mars? And uh, and also a little worried you're going to have to go through a whole season of this? What's the news from Mars? All right. The news from Mars is that uh, getting to Mars is hard. Uh, the trip, the, we, we've done one long-term, fairly long-term trip uh, to another place, and that was to the moon. And you can do that in a little box because it's just a few days to get there. Uh, so they, the people who went to the moon, they just sat in the basically the little thing that they shot them up on the rocket with. But you cannot do that to Mars because it takes at minimum six months to get there and then another six months to get back. So you need space. You need space for astronauts to move around, to do their research, to exercise, and also to store all the stuff that they need. So... NASA has just launched the Next Step 2 program, which asks six different companies to design and prototype deep space habitats. Uh, And they have budgeted, I think, $65 million to divide amongst these companies to design those habitats. Each Each company has a different set of skills, so each habitat will have different capabilities and usefulnesses. Uh, Bigelow Aerospace, for example, uh, specializes in lightweight inflatable habitats, so they can like launch up this thing and then just fill it with air, and it becomes a, you know a place where people can spend some time. Um, and one of those was recently tested on the International Space Station, so it's a thing that works. Uh, so if we ever want to get to Mars, we need a place to live in while we're going there, and NASA is taking a big step in that direction to get us there before 2028. That was a terrible bad. Yeah, I mean, you sound about as confident in uh, getting there before 2028 as I <laughs> sound about AFC Wimbledon season at the moment. Uh, hard times for lovers of Mars and or uh, the world's greatest third tier soccer team. But, uh, you know, hope is the thing with feathers or hope exists as the thing with feathers. It does. It exists that way. <laughs> Hank, what did we learn today? John, we learned that well, I learned that you shouldn't use a humidifier if you have asthma, which is a thing I didn't know. Yeah, that's that's helpful. I also learned that the U.S. Mint does not make any $100 bills, or for that matter, any bills. They only make coins, which is why they are called a mint. Maybe I could have put that together myself, you would think. But no, <laughs> no, I needed help. Um, we also learned that, that apparently there are many, many, many shades of brown uh, and no shades of red. They're all just shades of brown. No, there are many shades of red. They just fall within the larger category of brown. And, and we learned that Zima still exists in Japan, which fills me with hope that one day Hank will be forced to drink 378 Zimas to try to prove that he actually likes Zima, only to find out that in fact he doesn't. And of course we learned that despite the fact that neither of us care or uh, are able to implement this advice, uh, As long as the sun is up, you could say, have a good day. And anytime after five, you could say, have a good night.
I'd almost say anytime after four. I know, I know. I think it's it's very fluid, and there's a lot of overlap. And I just think that no one should no one should cause any ruckus either way because it's very hard to keep all this stuff straight, John. It's too much. It's just so hard to be a human. Let's just try whenever possible to be careful of each other and kind to each other. Unless it's twelve oh two, in which case you got to say it's it's twelve oh two. Other stranger running. <laughs> Still, It still bugs me, but I'm glad it now bugs you as well. <laughs> Thanks to everyone uh, who listened to our podcast. By the way, uh, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John, if you want to support this podcast directly. Uh, and uh, thanks, as always, to my actual corporate sponsor, Snickers. <laughs> I mean, you can say that. You can say, I guess you can say that. I guess you I'm should. Still eating their... Still eating those free Snickers, hoping that there's more on the way. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, Nicholas Jenkins edits this podcast. Claudio Morales is our intern. Rosiana Hals-Rojas uh, helps us out with the questions. Our theme music is by the great Gunnarola. Check out his YouTube channel uh, or any of his songs. And uh, Hank, did I miss anything? No, I think you got everything. Oh, we're, well, our email address. Our email address is, is hankandjohn at gmail.com. You can email us your questions. You can also send them to us on Twitter, where John is John Green and I am Hank Green. Uh, I'm also on Snapchat. It's Hank GRE. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome.